Section 17 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by John Brandon. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. In Another Land. We have passed the stage in this history where the dark shades of murder, of death, and disappearance have fallen, and closed in on some of those characters with whom we are concerned, hiding them from our eyes. As again we lift the veil and raise the curtain of the drama, the scene must be shifted to a different land. With its serpentine walks, its shadowy and overhanging trees, its patches of fresh green verdure, and more than all besides, the unique and seldom surpassed views which it affords of marine activity and life, that little oasis of brightness which forms what we may call the tip of the narrow, insulated tongue of land known as Manhattan Island, on which has sprung up into wondrous activity and commercial life the busy, teeming, American metropolitan cosmopolitan city of New York, the tip of land above referred to, known commonly as Battery Park, forms when the cool, fresh breezes from the ocean neutralize somewhat the fierce heat of the sun on land, or in the stifling purlieus of the crowded streets, particularly in the hotter months of the year, one of the most seductive and one of the most attractive nooks that can be found, one of the freshest and freest breathing places in the great and busy Empire City. Here the contemplative may well indulge in reverie, here the idle may be tempted to dalliance, and here even the fatigued may seek repose. Perhaps it was the almost classic retirement of this spot, standing as it does out of the way of, but at the same time surrounded by, the busy turmoil of the commercial world that induced Colonel Heinrich Vandermeulen to choose the vicinity of Battery Park as the head center of his operations, from which he could take his own peculiar survey, view mankind and the world, as it were, with his own eyes. The refreshing quietude of the situation as compared to the dense and feverish rush of life which day by day courses through the busy arteries of the great American city, seemed to favor the development of those mental calculations which had rendered the name of Heinrich Vandermeulen at once the best known and the most devoutly to be dreaded individuality among the piquant fraternity of his surrounding world. Oft had the cleverest rogues to lament that they owed the loss of that blessed boon of liberty, most valued when it is lost, to the profound ruminations which passed in the brain of the sagacious colonel, as he sat enjoying the fragrance of his twenty-cent Havana in Battery Park, his mind actively employed, though his body rested, and his keen dark eye wandered away abstractly over the distant sea, as it lay in its rippling blue, or apparently 
lazily follow the course of some one of those leviathans of the sea as she ploughed her way through the deep. Or again, as the same keen dark eye rested on some white sail which caught by the winds of heaven seemed playfully to dance along over the bright bosom of the laughing waves. High up in one of those many-storied edifices which seemed to be the pride and glory of the American citizen and American cities in the immediate vicinity of Battery Park, in a small office or room remarkable above most things for its lack of pretension and absence of display in this tiny sanctum, except when he chose to avail himself of the charm and freshness of the park beneath, lived and worked the acutest detective brain of his time. It was something within three months of the time wherein were enacted the incidents and events of which the last few chapters have told. For some hours the rush of commercial life in the city of New York had almost ceased. The crowds which daily throng and jostle and rub shoulders about all the streets adjacent to the post office in the one general, almost universal hunt for gold had relinquished for a few short hours the active adoration of mammon, the false idolatrous cult of that unholy god, and had quitted the precincts of the marts of trade for various homes, such as villas on the pleasant adjacent islands, across the rivers or bay, some for luxurious clubs or hotels, some for the greater quietude of palatial uptown mansions, and some, indeed, perhaps the less fortunate, or the less favored, or the less venturous or bold, had relinquished a daily hard-bread-seeking struggle for less bright, less favored abodes. Day had long faded into night. Wall Street and its adjacent thoroughfares looked like some silent and deserted city of the dead, or echoed only with the occasional footfall and the leisurely measured tread of the roundsman or patrol. But late as was the hour, a light, dim and subdued, might have been seen in the high-up office window from which on bright and sunny summer days Colonel Kynrick Vandermeulen's window commanded views extensive and beautiful of New York Bay, with its adjacent islands and headlands, while away to the right the great bronze Statue of Liberty a great idea with but a limited effect, with upraised arm, enlightened, certainly a very infinitesimal fraction of the world. Possibly the knowing colonel had selected this elevated position because he admired sea views, or possibly as an eerie advantage, in order that with his powerful marine binoculars he might sweep the horizon, for Colonel Vandermeulen or, as he was familiarly dubbed among his most intimate associates and chums, Kern, had considered it worth his while to make himself acquainted with the appearance of every steamer of importance which entered or departed from the port and bay of New York. And reports of arrivals off Sandy Hook were when the circumstances called for the special attention of the colonel, known to him about as soon as they were communicated to the shipowners and shipowning companies themselves. 
As we have said, on the night on which we are writing, the subdued light which appeared in the colonel's window from without indicated that this at least of the many offices in the many edifices round about Battery Park was tenanted, notwithstanding the late hour of the day, or rather the advanced hour even of the night, and had the occupant of that office been just at that time aware that his little window was an object of such careful and thoughtful attention as it was from a man who seemed almost furtively, almost fearfully, to loiter under the dark shadows of the trees in the park beneath. It is not improbable that jubilation, rather than the dire perplexity which possessed him, would have given another and the prevailing tone to the colonel's thoughts. However, at this time, perplexity, rather than jubilation, was the paramount condition of Colonel Vandermeulen's mind. Commonly, he, with more readiness and perspicuity than most men alive, saw through the motives of human actions. He read mankind and human nature and human actions as an open book, and what would be incomprehensible enigmas, either social or human, to most men, were to Colonel Vandermeulen occurrences as clear as the light of day. A rather thick, heavy-looking man, you would have thought him, could you have seen him seated in that little office alone. A personality markedly of the American type, but whose ancestors might have been of Teutonic or Dutch, or what in New York is called the old Knickerbocker stock with straight black hair and keen dark eyes, accompanied by that heavy stolidity which I find not easily describable in mere words, but which one may not unfrequently meet with in association with some uncommon quality of mind, shall I say is often met with in connection with phenomenal parts, for not invariably is genius indicated by the bright intelligent face." But Colonel van der Mullen was one of those men, either fortunate or wise, who had chosen the way of life most suited to the talents with which, by nature, he was endowed. He was an example of the round man who had found sense enough to fall into the circular hole. For it is a lamentable thing, when we see talent in any particular direction, misdirected and misapplied. The minister of religion, who would have made, for example, a dashing officer in the charge of a brigade, or the merchant, who would have been an ornament to the ranks of genius in science or art. I might multiply examples, but Colonel Vandermeulen was none such as these. He was a man eminently fitted by nature for his own particular role and a perplexing one is sometimes proved, and which would have driven most men to their wit's end. And yet to be baffled in the hunt, to fail in pursuit, was a misfortune which to Colonel Vandermeulen was almost unknown. And so success upon success had rendered him at once one of the most sought-for sought for by the hunters and most dreaded by the quarry, of the human sleuth-hounds of his time. But on the occasion of which I have to tell, 
Colonel Vandermeulen sat in his little office far into the night. Somewhere uptown he had another establishment, where there were bairns and a frau, but just now that seemed no place for him. Colonel Vandermeulen had another game to play. So far into the night he sat in his little office alone, and as he sat there seemed to pervade him a puzzled, I may almost say a painfully perplexed and troubled air, for once he was almost on the point of admitting to himself that he was outpuzzled, checkmated, done. Must he, must Colonel Vandermeulen, for that once fail in his pursuit? But man's extremity proves to be God's opportunity more often than we think or own. Upon a desk before which Colonel Vandermeulen sat in the little office lay a heap of papers and documents of varied aspect, private, official, and otherwise multifarious. Singling out one from amongst these for something like the twentieth time, the thinker carefully and deliberately perused its contents. Its strongly official aspect and savor might have been a little appalling to the uninitiated and unofficial mind, but Colonel Vandermeulen regarded that aspect only as a matter of course. Officialism was an ism with which he came in contact well-nigh every day of his active life. Surmounted by a woodcut of those two potent and militant representative creatures, the lion and the unicorn fighting for the crown, the document apparently at once so serious in its purport, and to Colonel Keinrich Vandermeulen so interesting in its details, read this. Murder, 5,000 pound reward. Whereas, on the night, or in the early morning of the blank day of August, 18 blank year, there died at his residence, known as Vernwood, in the parish of Blank, in the county of Blank, England, and formerly of Millbank, Blank County, Virginia, Bertram Honor Gunalt, and whereas the said Bertram Honor Gunalt met his death by violence at the hands of some person or persons unknown. This is to certify that the above reward of five thousand pounds will be paid to any person or persons who, not being the actual perpetrators of the crime, shall give such information as shall lead to the conviction of the parties, whereby the said Bertram Gunalt met his death. Any information which will be treated in strict confidence may be given by letter or personally to Messrs. Wyndham and Lumley, Solicitors, Number Blank, Blank Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, London. Such was the document that the detective read through and through. He viewed it naturally, fairly, and as it seemed, as you and I, reader, would have viewed it with our untutored minds and eyes, he viewed it suspiciously, as he had sense and experience enough to view almost everything in this deception-seeking life. He viewed it from behind and before, and he turned it upside down, 
for none knew better than he that strange and apparently unimportant and unexpected trivialities may point to important facts and lead to important ends. Then he soliloquized, for he was alone. Five thousand pounds reward. Pile of money at stake, too. Then he continued to read. And furthermore, whereas the aforesaid Bertrand Honor Ganault is believed to have died intestate, this is to certify that another and additional reward of five thousand pounds will be paid to any person or persons who shall give such information as shall lead to the discovery and whereabouts, if living, of his heir or heirs. Any information on this may be given, as above, to Messrs. Wyndham and Lumley, Solicitors, Number Blank, Blank Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, London. For some minutes, after pursuing these documents, the colonel seemed to relapse into a state of the profoundest thought. He drove his fat fingers through his short straight hair. Then he pushed his hands deep into his trouser pockets, as deep as he could, as he sat in his chair. Then he threw back his big head and puffed vigorously on the twenty-cent weed which he held between his teeth, all the while watching intently, as if from the dense cloud, which arose in circling fumes above his head, he hoped to discover some spark of inspiration or relief. Then changing his position uneasily, and again fumbling and searching among the heap of papers before him, he presently drew something else out from the heterogeneous mass. It was not a document, at least it was not a document in the common and ordinary sense and meaning of the word, for a photograph is not a document, and a photograph is what it was. It was a well-executed picture, large and long, of that particular style and shape known among the professional photographic artists in England as an imperial. No mere fifth-rate production of skill no mere amateur attempt at art was the picture which he held before him, but a costly, naturally, and accurately colored portrait, the work of a master hand. Fine, however, as was the picture, as an example of the photographic art, it represented a subject horrid and revolting to behold, a subject rendered still more revolting, still more startling, still more lifelike, we cannot say, by the terrible, vivid reality which it brought to mind. It was the face of a man, I may say it was the face and hand of a man, photographed after death. The neck and body of the dead, swathed in ample linen folds, seemed to speak suggestively of something beneath the folds, too fearful for the eye, to be permitted to contemplate, while the face portrayed told only too plainly that the dead had suffered the torture of a painful, nay, of a violent death. One hand, the right, was unseen 
while the left with its long and bony fingers, the first of which was encircled by a gold and sapphire band ring, lay conspicuously resting across the bosom of the dead. Realistic and deathlike it was. The picture, in its masterfulness, seemed to suggest to conceal, as it were, a darker chapter of horrors, even than it displayed or revealed. Colonel Vandermeulen, in the course of his professional career, had looked upon many horrifying sights. In his military experience, he had encountered death in its thousand aspects upon the field. But the picture before him looked sickening and transcended even his experience of the appearance of death, rendered still more ghastly by the apparent laugh, almost as if in the last convulsive gasp for life. The eyes were closed, while the well-fixed mustache ends, turned upwards, seemed to enhance the effect of the sardonic Mephistophelian laugh, which lingered on the countenance, even in the last long repose of the dead. Another thing which the observant detective noted was that the right cheek was scarred by some cicatrix, which, although long healed, still left its impress until and after the latest hour of life. Verily, the picture was one to fill the mind with a sense of loathing and disgust. But yet horrible as it was, it seemed to indicate clearly and truthfully the semblance and character of the countenance during life. But emaciated, apparently thinned, and stricken, though it might be with disease, Probably the reader who has followed, even though not too closely or minutely in his mind, the revolting details of this horrid picture may have divined that what Colonel Vandermeulen was gazing at might be a post-mortem portrait of Bertram Gnault. So it was. But it was not the portrait of Bertram Gnault as we viewed his remains as they lay in state as they lay in the mockery of pomp by which the departed are sought to be beautified when for the last time they are to be gazed upon by loving and regretful eyes. No, it was a photograph, which those who best knew wherefore they had turned the photographic art to such account had been secured of Bertram Gnault as quickly as could be after death. End of section 17